So I'm going to be talking about money, sex, and power. That's great. I was going to just talk about money and power. But uh, Gene Noble said to Glenn Crosby the other day, Wilson must be sick. We hadn't had our sex talk now in six months. <laughs> so uh, well, that'll be a little bit of a sex talk. But the main thing we want to talk about uh, at uh, Amen Retreat is uh, just how to get your life together. you got so many disparate parts of your life. Just pull them all together so they relate to each other, they make sense, you got direction in your life, and uh, you're really hitting home runs. And that's what we want to talk about, good life. Hey, we've got a car, looks like, a white car with a license plate, Sing Ye, must be a choir member. What about it? What about this car? Huh? Lights. Okay. So if you'd like to be able to drive to work this morning, or if, if you want a good excuse, just stay right where you are. It'd be fine. And you can, you can tell them you, that uh, there was nobody here that could give you a ride uh, to work. So you've got a good excuse. Guys, turn in your Bibles to Nahum, and in your study Bible, that's page 1480, Nahum the prophet. Uh, Nahum, if you have read it, it's just a scintillating book of the Bible, isn't it? Did you get a lot out of it? Just this excoriating judgment of one nation. Basically, it says, go to hell, Nineveh. I mean, that's, that's what it says. I, I used to go to Tennessee-Alabama football games, and they would tell each other to do that. But here in Nahum, that's about what you get, is that, uh, you know, it's all over for, for uh, Nineveh. And we're going to see why this is an important book of the Bible for us. This was written uh, in the mid-7th century, about 100 years after Jonah. And you remember Jonah went to Nineveh, and he didn't like the Ninevites either. They're a bunch of terrorists from northern Iraq, frankly. And he didn't like them, didn't want to go there, didn't want to preach God's grace because he was afraid they'd repent and enjoy a relationship with God and come into the church and be his brother and sister. He didn't want that at all. So he headed for Tarshish, and God headed for him and put him in the whale's belly, spit him out on the ocean, said, let's, uh, on the shore and said, let's try that again. So Jonah goes back to Nineveh, not with a whole lot better attitude, but he does preach, and God, sure enough, through the message of a reluctant preacher, uh, he converts Nineveh. Even the king was dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and he put sackcloth on the animals. Uh, He was in such deep repentance, the king was. And Jonah pouted, say, I I knew you'd do that, God. If I preached the gospel, I knew you'd make them believe. Uh, Some evangelist, Jonah was. And uh, so God showed great grace to Nineveh. This is a hundred years later. And meanwhile, you remember we discussed last time that the Assyrians had not only conquered and taken captive the northern kingdom so that now all of Israel, the northern kingdom, is being ruled by Assyrian generals. But now they besieged Jerusalem. They're going for the southern kingdom, Judah. And they were unsuccessful, remember? Because an angel slayed 185,000 Assyrians that night, showing that when Hezekiah the king trusted God instead of political alliances, God will take care of you. And he did. And so Jerusalem was delivered. Well, this is a little later. And we enter into the very wicked kingship of Manasseh, who followed Hezekiah. Manasseh ruled for 55 years. And it appears that Nahum is written in the middle of Manasseh's reign. And Manasseh was uh, 
trying to buy out the Assyrians so that they wouldn't conquer Judah. And he was playing all the political uh, schemes and games that God forbade. Instead of trusting in the Lord, Manasseh was trusting in his own wit. But it was the middle part of that century, in the 600s, 7th century, and uh, during the reign of wicked King Manasseh, when Assyria is the world power, and they're at the ascendancy of their world power. They are the big cheese in, the entire, in that entire part of the world. And Nahum takes out after them. I mean, think about this. You've got a king. Your, your king is pro-Assyrian because he has a carefully nuanced alliance to keep them from invading. Assyria already rules in the northern part of the kingdom, which is Israel, and is a constant threat to the south. And you're out there preaching God's hellfire and brimstone against Assyria, the biggest power in the world. That's not called that's called uh, unsafe preaching. <laughs> but Nahum had a message from the Lord. If you look at the very uh, first verse, uh, it says there an oracle concerning Nineveh. That word oracle could also and often is translated burden. A burden concerning Nineveh. Well, you better believe it was a burden. It was a revealed oracle or word from the Lord, but it was a huge uh, mishah, burden for Nahum. And you know what, gentlemen? Sometimes a truth that you've got in your heart is a huge burden to you. And uh, if, you've, if you've been following God for very long at all, you know that's true. That you have many truths and many things that you know that become quite burdensome to you. Uh, for example, if someone dies and they don't know the Lord, you're silent, your mouth is shut, but inwardly you have this huge burden. If someone is doing something at work and you seem to be the only one who thinks it's dishonest, you've got a huge burden burden on your heart. If you believe something about public morality and you're at a cocktail party and everyone is making fun of your position and you're trying to decide whether to say anything or not, you've got a huge burden on your heart. If one of your kids has not yet come to the Lord and is in danger of their own life, you have a huge burden. Why? Because you have a word from the Lord about reality, about heaven and hell, and about truth, and about the gospel, and about what's right and what's wrong. And that's exactly what Nahum had. He had a word from the Lord, and it was a huge burden to him. So let's realize that as he preaches this message, which to us just seems so negative, it was a huge burden to him. So let's take a look. Let's read through chapter 1. That We'll spend most of our time there probably. And let's get a, the gist of this message that God had given Nahum the prophet. And by the way, it says uh, the, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Where is Elkish? Well, we don't know for sure. But 4th century Jerome, who you may remember, translated the scriptures from Greek into Latin, and the Latin Vulgate is really Jerome's work. Jerome, in the 4th century, did a lot of archaeological, historical study, tried to figure out where things happened. And he believed that he found Elkish up near the Sea of Galilee. So since then, a lot of scholars have felt that uh, Nahum actually comes from the northern part of Israel. 
which, remember, is under Assyrian rule at the time this is written. So he has a lot of reason to understand the viciousness of the Assyrians and God's judgment against them. But he also, uh, it adds to its cur- his courage, to his profile, because that's his hometown. They could, Assyria could just level his hometown and all of his relatives. And believe me, that's exactly what they would do on many occasions. So he has this huge burden, preaching at the expense, uh, the risk of his own life and the ri- lives of his own family. But let's look at it. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. How'd you like to start your gospel message with that? I'd like to share a few things with you about God. He's a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Now you make that your memory verse today. Share it with your partner when you go to work. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. That's kind of the keynote to the entire book, by the way. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before Him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at His presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, He will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Let's stop right there. Hey, how's that over a bowl of cereal and a cup of orange juice? Woo! Man, what's got him so ticked off? Well, we're going to see, and we're going to see why this is so important for us to master books like this one in the Bible. And it's true. None of you probably had it. Your life verse, verse 1. He said, the Lord is jealous and avenging God, takes vengeance, and is filled with wrath. But let me tell you, probably the reason we don't is because we do pick and choose among the Scripture texts. We do underline those verses that we find encouraging and kind of lift us up for the day. Let me tell you something. In order to find our voice in this world, in order to know what our place is, we really do need to deal with the judgment of God. And I don't know, when's the last time 
How many of you heard a sermon on the judgment of God within the past month? So you didn't hear it during Christmas. Okay. How about the past three months? Anybody hear a sermon on the judgment of God? Past six months? Anybody hear one in the past year? Can anybody ever remember hearing a message on the judgment of God? (laughs) I mean, really. Okay, look. The past year, none of you remembers hearing a message on the judgment of God. Now, if you take that proportion, that none of you out of three or four hundred of you heard any message last year on the judgment of God, and you compare that, which is a big fat zero, and go back to your Bible... And look how often. I mean, just look in the minor prophets, how we've dealt with this over and over again. You say, well, I'm just getting sick and tired of this. I know. And that's the way we feel. And our preachers know we feel that way. And so they don't preach because they just, you won't come back to church next week because you're tired of hearing messages on the judgment of God. So we don't give them to you. We have this nice little conspiracy going on. You don't want to hear about it. You'd rather just go along your way without thinking about God that way. We'd like to keep you happy and keep the tithes and offerings flowing in. So we got this deal. And none of you heard anything in the past year. This Bible is full of it. And this, this book of the Bible right here is full of it from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 19. It's a very important part of the Scriptures. And you say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament God. And I've heard, I've heard some of us speak this way. That's the Old Testament God, the New Testament God. He's God of love. Keep your finger in Nahum. Come back with me just a moment. And let's look at a few verses. Look at Romans chapter 1. And here you have, if you, if you remember Romans, you remember when we studied this eight years ago? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Romans chapter 1 begins describing what happens to all of us who seek God our own way. This is page 1810, by the way, in your Bible. Romans 1 verse 18 begins to describe the gospel by giving us the backdrop for the gospel. In other words, why does the gospel even come? The gospel comes because we're in a predicament called the judgment of God. And look what he says in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So it basically makes an argument there that men all across the world, no matter what religious background they have, they have been shown something of God's deity and His power through creation and through their own consciences that He created in their minds. So even without the Bible, they have a conscience and they have revealed to them the Creator in the creation, no matter how much people may try to obfuscate that point. It's really there and we're responsible for it. No excuses. And because we have broken our own consciences and violated what can be known about God in creation, we're all responsible and so much so that the wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the obvious in their wickedness. That's the starting point. That's the reason we have good news. It's because we've got bad news. Every day has bad news and good news in it. Well, the bad news is that you're created and brought into this world as a sinner and the wrath of God abides on you. Look in chapter 12 of Romans. 
Turn over a few pages. And you get this idea of the vengeance of God. We'll see the Bible's full of this stuff. Verse 19. This is Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's right from Deuteronomy. So the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. Turn over a couple of books in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And you see that he says, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is page 1878, 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now turn over to Second Thessalonians. A few more books in your Bible there. Another Pauline epistle. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. This would be page 1945. All this, this is a chapter 1 verse 5 of Second Thessalonians. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. There's some encouragement. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back, that is avenge, trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. And of course, we studied Revelation last year. You know what that book says about God's judgment. If you want to know which prophet in the Old Testament or which prophet in the Scriptures talks about judgment more than any other prophet, it is Jesus Christ. There are more verses in the Gospels on judgment than any book in the New Testament. And Jesus speaks more often about judgment than does any prophet or or writer in the New Testament. Why? Because it's true. And if it's true, this becomes an enormous reality with which we must deal. And the success of our dealing with it is the success of our eternal welfare, the success of our eternal lives. So obviously, Jesus being the only one who came from there, the very presence of God, and is God Himself, therefore knows intuitively and immediately infinitely more than any of the other prophets, He knows this is vital for us to deal with. And we're going to see today why this is, vi- uh, this is uh, vital for us to deal with it. And when we deal with Nahum, let's just realize we need to listen carefully and look at what God is saying about Himself and about His judgments so that we may apply the same principles according to who God really is, not what you want God to be, 
Everybody creates a God that they can get along with. We all do that. And you have to come to the Scriptures and get your God recalibrated and find out who He really is, not what you want Him to be, so that we are dealing with the real God. Now, what we find out in these first verses this, that we just read is that God's judgment flows from His jealousy. You see the verse here, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. Now, what does that mean? God is jealous. Well, you could look in Exodus, for example, in chapter 20 when he talks about the Ten Commandments. And we find that God is a jealous God. He is zealous for His own glory. Therefore, He is jealous when any other God is put before Him. And this is not just immature petulance in His case. This is a desire for what is good and right and holy. And He is good and right and holy. And therefore, anything that competes with His worship is immoral. So that basically every offense is offense against His glory. And He's jealous for His glory because His glory is the ultimate good. And when He creates humankind and wants to be good to them, they must be like Him And so anything that obfuscates His glory is an impediment to the welfare of His people. So He's jealous for His glory. And He pays back. Why? Why does He pay back? Because He is a perfect judge. And a judge requires payment for that which is done wrong and requires restitution for that that wrong that has been committed against a neighbor. A judge requires justice. And if God's character is the ultimate good, and when it, he, His praise is abridged or impeded in any way, there has to be a just response. This is not some capricious, out-of-control, uh, you know, sort of uh, type A, angry male uh, alpha male sort of response. This is the anger, the settled anger and wrath of a just and holy God. A lot of folks uh, have a problem with uh, something that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Actually, you you might want to turn there. It's in the back of your your, uh, Bibles. You actually have a Westminster Confession of Faith back there. Keep your finger in Nahum. We'll come back. But if you look on page 2176... Page 2176 at the very back. You'll see on, down there on the lower left, chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the theological chapter about the very being of God. And we say there, there is but one only living and true God. This is chapter 2, paragraph 1. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Passions is the word used in the, in the 17th century that a lot of folks today have trouble with when they think about God. They say, well, God is passionate. Well, what the Westminster divines 450 years ago meant was not that God is not passionate in the sense of caring deeply about things. What they mean by passions are those emotions that are just irrational that we all experience. When we're passionate, 
Our anger is not usually justified anger. It's usually based on our own selfishness. So in that sense, the divine's meant he is without passions. Here's what they mean. I mean, you can see an example, a human example of it, an analogy. You know, in the judiciary hearings with Samuel Leto and John Roberts over this past year. You know, they get... How, how would you do if you were sitting in his seat? I mean, I already told you how I would do. I would, I'd, I'd have prepared some pretty sharp comebacks. You know, you know, like I told you, I would have said to a few of those senators, you remind me of the back end of a horse or something like that, you know. You, know, you have a relative, you know, that maybe I've met before. Um, you know, I'd have all kinds of responses for these guys. But you notice there's a judicial temperament that I don't have. That's the reason I'm not a judge. I don't have a judicial temperament. I can't have somebody tell me I'm an idiot and not respond. I'm not very good at that. So I'm not, not a judge. But you notice how we all value judges who have judicial temperaments. So they can be asked these questions that have angles to them and, and suggestions to them and innuendos to them that really you're a creep and have bad character. And they respond very objectively and abstractly to the law. There's a judicial temperament. Now, where's that come from? It comes from God. God is not petty. He is consistently on theme, which is His own righteousness and holiness in all the earth. Where it says here in this first verse in Nahum, back to where we were then, it says that He is filled with wrath. Literally, what the Hebrew there says is He's a master of wrath. He is completely in control of His wrath. When you see God's wrath breaking out, it is not because He got caught off guard, got surprised, got ticked off. Ticked off is really not the right expression for God. He doesn't get ticked off. He plans the expression of His wrath for centuries, in fact, from all eternity, to display His glory, the glory of His justice. It's very intentional. It's very measured. He is a master of His wrath. Now, Christians often, and human beings in general, when thinking thoughts about God, will say, you know, I really love God, but I just, you know, okay, I'm convinced the Bible says He's a wrathful God. I guess I have to accept that. So I love God for His love, and I accept the fact that He's he's wrathful. Now, Now, would you listen to yourself? So now you're tolerating God. Hey, great, good, nice. Glad you can get along with Him. Glad you accept Him. I mean, I know it's hard to accept someone like God. I mean, you know, He has His defects. Sometimes He breaks out in wrath. So thank you, though, for being so tolerant and allowing Him to be your God. Uh, You can see how silly that is. You don't tolerate God. You don't accept God. You worship God. You serve God. You embrace Him with all of your heart. You lay your life out at His service. You open your mind and say, teach me and let me become like you. So, gentlemen, you don't accept God's wrath. You must not only believe that He's a wrathful God, but you must like it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No. You must not only like it, you must love it. Because that is who He is. And you can't say to your love, your, your, the love of your life, your wife, 
you know, honey, I just love your cooking, but, you know, the rest of you, I just don't know. I accept it. That's just the way it is. Boy, that's really great. Uh, if that's what you do, hit the men's retreat this next weekend, would you? <laughs> uh, there's a total love of your wife. That's what you're growing toward. That's what you're trying to do. Well, if it's true with an imperfect mate in marriage, how much true of your perfect God that you must be the one who changes. You don't tolerate Him. You worship Him and love Him and adore Him and serve Him and proclaim Him even when it's a burden. So, if you've been reluctant to receive this aspect of God's character, here's what you've been reluctant to do. You've been reluctant to receive God Himself because that's who He is. So let's dig in and see what this wrath is all about. You'll notice in the first couple of verses you get this idea of jealousy or rather taking vengeance. Look at verse 2. The Lord takes vengeance. Verse 2, the Lord takes vengeance on His foe. Um, and uh, and then, uh, well, verse 2. Let's just back up. Verse 2, first line. The Lord is a jealous and a, a vengeance-taking God. So you get it there the first time. Same word, participle. A vengeance-taking God. And then the Lord takes vengeance. And then again in the second, third line, the Lord takes vengeance. You think He's trying to make a point. The Lord does repay for wickedness. He's a judge. And we're going to see why this is so vital to our salvation. Not just to our worship, but to our salvation that we understand this. And then you also see the word the Lord is given three times in verse 2. The Lord is the word Yahweh, which is His covenant name. It's the name by which He is called by His people. Yahweh, Jehovah. So we're saying, your God, O Israel, is a vengeance-taking God. Your God, O Israel, is a vengeance-taking God. Your God, O Israel, is a vengeance-taking God. So, O Israel, I think God's trying to make a point this morning. He takes vengeance. Let's look at the meaning of this. Out of this vengeance, first of all, we're going to see He takes vengeance on His enemies. And in verses 3 through 5, what we've had there is just this awesome display. The whole earth trembles. Who can withstand his indignation? The mountains quake. The earth trembles. The sea is rebuked. It dries up. All the rivers run dry. His anger just fries everything. It's so interesting that, uh, you know, when you see movies uh, or little video clips of the tsunami, you know, uh, 13 months ago, people who were out, you know, in Indonesia just taking a great vacation with a girlfriend, shacking up, you know, and, just hanging out. All of a sudden, here comes the wave. First of all, you don't know what's hitting you, and then you realize, ah, we've got to get out of here. And then you just see people just running in abject terror you know, from the, from the shore. Or you find the Katrina disaster and how people are just on the top of their roof waving to the helicopter, you know, please. All of a sudden, we're not very cool anymore, are we? <laughs> you know, we're not laid back, that great southern quality of debonair, you know. We're not laid back anymore. All of a sudden, we got our attention and we're desperate. And that's something that needs to happen to us every day of our lives. There's something really important about life. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy our vacations. But it means that down deep inside, we're always alert and aware that something very important is happening and is about to happen. And that there's a very important agenda upon the hearts of those who know about it. And it does at times create a burden. 
So we live in light of this awesome wrath all the time. It is unendurable. Verse 6, he says, who can withstand it? Who can endure it? And the scriptures say over and over again, you saw this in Revelation, that people will be saying, cover me. Be saying to the mountains, just cover me. Send the avalanche and cover me up. I'd rather die by an avalanche than to face the unbridled, unvarnished judgment of God and face His wrath head on. So there is something awesome about this. He does take vengeance on His enemies. Notice, secondly, that this, in a strange way, gentlemen, is a comfort to His people. Look at verse 7. He says, the Lord is good. It looks as though he's almost changing the subject. He was talking about his terror and all of a sudden you have you know, the violins start playing. We've been hearing the drums and the trumpets and then we hear these violins. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood and so on. Now we're going to see how you cannot be comforted without the wrath of God. The very thing you're trying to avoid because you don't like His wrath is the very thing that will prove to be your comfort and your salvation. The very word Nahum means comforter. He's <laughs> a strange comfort. comes out of the blocks, you know, preaching fire and brimstone. Well, here's why. God shows that He cares for us and He defends us. And verses 8 through 14 show us how God's anger toward Nineveh is a defense of His people, among other things. It, first of all, justifies His own character as a holy God because Nineveh has been doing some outrageous things against His very name. But He also is defending His people. And you are defended, you are saved by the wrath of God. You thought you were saved by the love of God. Well, you are saved by the love of God. But you're also saved by the wrath of God. The reason is, you're saved by God. And He is loving and wrathful. He's loving in that He loves you with no reason whatsoever except that He loves you. And He delivers you by destroying your enemies and His enemies. This is the whole ballgame. So if you don't like the wrath of God, you're just going to be swimming around with your enemies all the time, taking pot shots at you for eternity. That's called hell. But wrath purges heaven of its uncleanness and purges you of your uncleanness and purges this universe of your enemies. That's called wrath and justice and holiness. So He defends them. First of all, aggressively. He will pursue... That should be a He. He will pursue His foes into darkness, says verse 8. He is going after them. Have you ever seen uh, how uh, when your dog has a litter of pups... And uh, sometimes you want to just take one of those little puppies and play with them. And mama, mama don't like that too much sometimes. She can get what we call real bitchy. And uh, you can get your hand bitten off if you're not really careful. If you don't have a good relationship with her and she doesn't trust you, she doesn't like that, especially when they're really, really young. Well, if an animal has that instinct, what kind of instinct do you think God has? When someone's messing with you, one of his, one of his little ones, his, one of his sons, you better believe he's all over that. And he's going to bite somebody big time. And he's going to rid them from your presence. He's going to chase them into the darkness, we're told. Secondly, finally, 
Uh, he says, trouble will not come a second time. And what he means by that is that, look, these Assyrians who are plaguing you, I'm going out after them. And he did it once when they besieged Jerusalem. He went out after them with his angel and slew 185,000 of them. That should have been a pretty good warning. It was only 100 years ago. No, it was only 50 years ago. 701 B.C. And here we're in about 650 B.C. He's basically saying, look, I'm going, to del- I'm going to deliver you from these people in such a way you ain't going to have to deal with them anymore. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. In about 38 years, they were completely, completely wiped out by the Babylonians. So that 300 years later, people didn't even know where Nineveh was. I mean, think of it. You had these ancient cities like Alexandria, Jerusalem, Damascus. We all know, we know where those cities are. But for centuries, people didn't even know where Nineveh was, completely wiped off the face of the map. Believe me, Israel was not troubled a second time with Assyria. <laughs> but you say, well, Babylon came along, and they, they troubled uh, 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 Judah. They sure did. But look in the back pages of your Bible. What is the world order called? The city of Babylon. And what happens to Babylon? Destroyed forever. You're not troubled a second time with Babylon. So you, what you have here is God's judgment of the entire enemy uh, army of, of God's people, and they're going to be dealt with finally. Now that ought to allow you to walk in a certain way in life, knowing that that's true. So he says you're not going to be troubled a second time. And then they're dealt with very specifically. What I mean by, that, mean by that is he says in verse 11, From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth. And literally, he says one has come forth and counsels wickedness. Counsels wickedness. Or literally, son of wickedness, or what is known more literally, son of Belial. You're a son of Belial. What do you say? Where does that come from? Well, in the Scriptures, you'll find several references. The only New Testament reference is six, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.15, where uh, Paul says, don't be unequally yoked, because what does Christ have to do with Belial? So you're, you're looking at the ways of the world in a wickedness, the son of Belial, and here is one who's coming. And probably he's speaking of Sennacherib here, the king of Assyria. He has come forth as a veritable son of wickedness, a son of Belial. And what do you find then, of course, this whole thing works out. What does Christ have to do with Belial? Who would the ultimate Belial be, of course, but the devil himself? So we can think for just a moment about about. Who are God's and our enemies? Well, first of all, it's the devil himself. He is the ultimate one who has come forth to trouble you. And I'm telling you something, gentlemen. God is not ticked off. He is angry. He is opposing the evil one with all of his infinite powers. And he is absolutely determined to destroy him forever. What chance does the devil have? Big, fat zero. And he knows it. And we're told that he is furious because he knows his time is short. He's damned. He's a goner. God has opposed him. He is our enemy. And he is out to destroy you, but he won't get his way because of the Lord. Sin is one of our enemies. Sin is distancing us from God. 
That's what sin does. It's anti-relational. It's anti-social in our relationship with God. It creates distance between us. God hates it. It's an enemy. This fallen world, James says you can't be a friend of this world and be a friend of God. Why? They're enemies. This whole world order and all of its underlying nuance, all of its intentionality, all of its motives, what it's really about, and you find it creeping into everything, the marketplace, the home, the neighborhood, the nation, international politics, everywhere you find the world creeping in with all of its lusts and desires. It's an enemy of God. Your flesh is at enmity with God. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. He says, the flesh, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is hostile to God. And your flesh is still resident in the members of your body, Paul says. So there's something in you. And this is the kind of the schizophrenia that we all live in. You know, we, on one hand, we know that we love God if we're, if we're following Christ this morning. We know we love Him. On the other hand, why in the world do I do these stupid things? Because you still have flesh that's raging against God. And, and what it means to be a disciple is to learn to bring that flesh under His dominion so that the Spirit controls your life. And that's possible. That there is a Spirit-controlled mind that does know God and does serve Him. But we're always in, in an internal battle as well as an external battle. We battle with the world, we battle with the flesh, and we battle with the devil because they're enemies of God. And of course, the last great enemy is death. Death is our enemy. And death is an enemy of God and an enemy of our relationship. Well, we notice then that God uh, defends us aggressively, finally, specifically, and justifiably. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. And I have read some things to you before about the vileness of Assyria. But you may remember that the king took great pride and this is found in some of the archaeological findings around Nineveh, where the king said, he put it this way. This is the way the king described his own viciousness. I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled, and others I fixed to stakes around about the pillar, Many within the border of my own land I flayed. I spread their skins upon the walls and I cut off the limbs of the high officers, of the high royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire and many I captured alive. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers and from others I cut off their noses and their ears and the eyes of many men I put out and made one heap of the living and another of the heads and I bound their heads to vines Round about the city, their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. That's the king of Assyria. Vicious. You go, you're going downtown, one of the, one of the boulevards, and there's a nice vine and you see a head hanging from it. Put there compliments of the king. Gross, vile, vicious. And of course we're worried about, and we should be, whether, you know, we've fed Saddam properly and given him good accommodations and Nobody has struck him or mistreated him in any way. Probably haven't even talked meanly to him. <laughs> this is child's play. Uh, the, the forerunner of Saddam, Sennacherib, was a vicious, vicious man in Nineveh. And God doesn't like it. 
and God is justified. And some people say, well, you know, I know some really nice people. Well, let me tell you something. You know, or you may say, what about the people who never heard about God or who never heard about Jesus? You know, and I've imagined sometimes, what if, what if I'd been there when the Vikings, you know, were, were coming over, you know, and I, and I just get on their little boat and say, gentlemen, just a moment, I have an announcement to make. God is wrathful against all your viciousness and all the evil things that you're doing, but he's provided a way with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if anybody would like to receive him. How long do you think I would last? <laughs> they would skin me alive. Now, there's your innocent native. So let's not be romantic and naive about the fallen condition of human beings. We are all tending toward justifiable justice from God. This is the predicament of human beings. What will God do to His and our enemies? He'll crush the devil. He'll nail our sins to the cross. He'll eliminate the world order. He will purify our flesh. And He will destroy death, our final enemy. He's taking over. And He is destroying all of His and our enemies. This is what it means to have God as your King. He saves you and defends you from all of His and our enemies. Now, that is what you get in the first chapter, is this idea that God, coming out of His jealousy, takes vengeance on His enemies to defend the honor and glory of His perfect name, and He comforts His people by reminding us that He is going to deliver us from the grips of all of this evil. Now, quickly in chapter 2, I just want us to notice, uh, and we won't read all of this because I want to get to the final point here in just a moment, but you'll notice that God's judgment is both comforting and calamitous. This is in somewhat what we've been saying. God's judgment is comforting to the saints because you'll notice in verse 15 that He says, Look there on the mountains the feet of one who brings good news. Good news. You thought, you thought the good news was sweetness and cream. It is. Why is it sweetness and cream? Because He's going to destroy your enemy. There's the good news. There's where your peace comes from. It's from the wrath of God, exercising His judgment, delivering you from your evil on the inside, and delivering you from the evil on the outside, and purging the entire cosmos by His anger. That's what's going to get you to heaven. Is His perfect righteousness and His wrath. His wrath is being revealed against all the unrighteousness of men who suppress in their wickedness what can be known about God. So He will comfort the saints by bringing us peace and joy. He says to them, Celebrate your festivals, O Judah. Worship the Lord. Give thanks to Him. Be full of joy. Why? Because the day of your deliverance is coming. So you live in that celebration right now. And then notice God's judgment is calamitous to the wicked. And you can look at this chapter 2 some other time, but they're going to fall, they're going to be plundered. And verses 11 through 13, they're going to be mocked. They'll be the joke of the world. Those who seem to be in power, seem to be the cool, the, the rich, the the sexually active, where, with whomever they wish, whenever they want. Those who own the universe, it seems. Those who are completely in charge. Those who are so self-satisfied will be the butt of the joke at the end of the day. And the followers of God and those who know His Word know this is true. And it's frustrating and difficult. But down deep inside, you have this joy welling up because you see the direction of things. Now let's quickly move to chapter 3. 
I'm sorry we're moving so quickly because of time. God's judgment is certain. You don't have to wonder about whether this is really going to happen or not. Uh, brothers, it's going to happen. The sin, why? Because the sins of the wicked are great. All because of the wanton lust of the harlot. If you'll look in verses 1, or look at verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Look at this staccato building toward a crescendo, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot. So you can see, feel that march coming on. And the prophet, he's preaching in such a way, it's, very, it's a very powerful literary technique so that you can almost hear the chariots coming. You can almost feel the rumble of the ground as they come. You're supposed to feel that because you're living on the edge of the final day of God and you're living in the light of these realities all because of the wanton lust of a harlot. Their sins are great. My sins are great. And the judgment of God must come marching against my personal sins. They are awful. They are evil. They're against Him. My sins. My sins alone over 54, almost 55 years are sufficient to bring on the full wrath of God and to make the earth tremble. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Because He bore my sin. And that's the reason the night turned to day. And it's the reason that Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the awesome wrath of God had fallen upon His own Son. And that's how I'm delivered by the wrath of God, purging my sin away on His own Son. And if He didn't purge your sin away by His own Son, He will purge you away because He is a just judge. This is the reality the God-centered universe in which you're living. You may have put yourself at the center, but God's at the center, and this is the way He is. The wicked have made God their enemy. I am against you, He says in verses 5-7. through seven. I am against you. What an awesome statement for anybody to have that statement made about them without a covenant with God, without a substitute to bear the wrath of God. Imagine that, facing God when God, the living God says, I'm against you, and that's what the world is facing. God has historically demonstrated His determination. This is in Egypt. Are you better than Thebes in Egypt? You can go to Thebes today, down near Luxor, and you can see the destruction of Thebes. It was fortified. It was on the river. It was a massive fortification. And He's basically saying, are you Assyrians better than Thebes? If I can destroy Thebes, can I not destroy you? And human resistance is futile. Nothing can heal your wound. If you look at the very last verse in the book, he says, Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hand at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And I'm going to say to you, whether anybody else deals with the terrorists of our day, they'll be dealt with. They'll be dealt with. Now, what difference does this make to us? Let's take three minutes and talk about this. We always need to ask the question, so what? We're talking about something that happened 2,600 years ago. What in the world does this have to do with me? First of all, do not trifle with God. 
This is 2,600 years ago, but God is God. He's the same God. He has the same character. The way He was thinking then is exactly, precisely the way He thinks now. He is the eternal God. He is infinite in His being. He is unchangeable in His character. And that's the reason we study the Old Testament, to learn about God. And as we said, Jesus teaches us this about God. But we've chosen often not to listen to Him to discount what He says. Don't trifle with Him. That is, deal with His wrath. That's the reason that John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. How do you flee from it? You flee to Jesus Christ and receive Him as your substitutionary atonement, the One who took the wrath for you. Don't trifle with the wrath of God. Don't deal with God outside of Christ because what you're going to deal with is His wrath and He is against you. I mean, Jesus says this in John chapter 3. He says, anyone who comes to Him, they will have everlasting life. But those who don't, the wrath of God, verse 36, John 3, the wrath of God abides on them. This is the reason this is such important business. Don't trifle with Him, either as an unbeliever or a believer. If you're a believer, that same wrath that delivers you is the discipline against your own flesh. It's the same character of God that's against your flesh that is against the world and the devil. Secondly, let God alone be judge and executioner. This is what makes Christians, ideally, peaceful men. George Will once said, I think think this world would be a lot more gentlemanly if we still packed heat on, on our hips. Every man had a gun. He says, it's amazing how nice and gentlemanly people are when everybody's packing heat. There's a point to that. It's amazing how nice and sweet and kind you can be when God's packing heat. What do you have to worry about? Why do you have to wreak vengeance? Why do you have to pay people back? Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is the Lord's. And when you wreak vengeance against your enemy, you're taking the place of the Lord. So this mentality makes you kinder, gentler, softer because somebody's packing heat. Stick confidently with the program. If this is who God is, and this is certain it's going to happen, stick with the program. All hell may break loose, or it may look like it's breaking loose. But remember, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And God is triumphantly, relentlessly marching toward the day of victory. Celebrate the coming victory. That's what worship is all about. Anybody who gets this, that I deserve His wrath, but I'm getting His love because His wrath is being poured out on His own Son. And furthermore, He's going to deliver me from all this evil by His wrath one day, and I'm going to win a mighty victory. Tell me now you can't worship. Tell me you don't know how to sing a hymn. Tell me you don't know how to pray. Tell me you don't know how to thank God. So we celebrate. That's what He says. Celebrate and fulfill your vows. Get into worship. And then lastly, help your neighbor. For if your neighbor knows not God, well, you know what I'm talking about. This is the reason that your witness, if you're a believer this morning, your witness is absolutely vital. You were pursued by the gospel. You were pursued. God put people in your way. He went after you. That was God that was going after you. And now He says to you, you pursue others. Because the gospel by its very nature is a pursuing gospel. So if this be reality, and it is, then the number one agenda in this life is to worship God and obey Him and to help others flee from the wrath to come, which is exactly what Jesus tells us to do and John the Baptist tells us to do. Now, that's the reason. 
that it's important to deal with this very dominant message in the Bible about God's judgment. Let us go out of this place and be men who are living in the light of God's character as a very loving and gracious God, which is all the more amazing because He is also a just and a holy and a powerful God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your character and we thank You that out of that character flows Your providence in history and that one day You shall bring it all to a beautiful conclusion. We thank You for Your Son who has come to this world to bear the wrath of Almighty God for our sins to set us free. And I pray for every man in this room that we will put our trust in Jesus Christ, that we may be delivered from the wrath to come and that You'll help us to live lives now that are wide open and that are alert that are aware, not just accepting, but believing and embracing of the judgment of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.